Welcome to No Go Area, the podcast that takes you to places where we probably shouldn't go. And you never know, it might just get dirty. Evening, mate. How's it going? Not too bad. How about you? Well, bearing up under the strain, so to speak. Yeah. Been a funny week. I upset I upset a group of people on Facebook again. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what it, what it is... Um, it's an anti-conservative group, right? Right. And um, I, I, I just thought I was, you know, amongst friends. But yeah, it turns out that yeah, I mean, it should change the name to anti-conservative and Brexit group. Oh, you know? God. <laughs> so I'm, I'm clearly not amongst friends in this case. No, no. So, so basically. Um, somebody was banging on about, um, you know, the uh, Indian variant coming yeah. into uh, the UK and said this is all down to Brexit, right? Okay, okay. So I'm right. like, oh, well, I can't see the connection there, but, you know, no, fire away. Not, yeah. <laughs> and it basically said, oh, it's because uh, Boris Johnson is so desperate to to do this sort of trade deal with India, you know? And I, right. I, I said, I don't think that has got anything whatsoever to do with Brexit. Nothing. No, I, I don't think so. Just listening to that, no. And then they came back and said, it's got everything to do with Brexit, you Nazi. And I'm like, oh, lovely. Well, hang on a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't see that connection either, you know? And, no. And, uh, and then I said, "Look, you know, at the end of the day, when it when it comes to the EU, right? The EU had quite a few bonuses with us on board, right? Yeah. Uh, one of which was that we have a group of countries that we trade with called the Commonwealth, right? Yes. And therefore, if the EU has access to Britain, they also have access by default to the Commonwealth, right? Yes. And then." this person came on there and said, um, oh, so you recommend a return to slavery with the Commonwealth then, do you, you Nazi? And I'm like, oh. well, I'm looking at this person. This person's an Indian person, right? Right. And there were other people banging on about all these um, Indians being allowed in the country on these flights that are still coming in. And they are still coming in, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I said, look, you know, you can't stop anyone from the Commonwealth coming here. They have a right to come here and live if yeah. they want. Yeah, you know, exactly. You Nazi bastard. I'm like, <sighs> no, I don't think you understand what the Commonwealth is. You no. Know? I mean, when we sort of had to give everybody their independence and give up the British Empire... We said, well, look, what we'll do, rather than abandon you to the wolves, we will, um, what, we'll, what we'll do is form this commonwealth where everybody can benefit from trading with each other. And yeah. if you want to come and live in Britain, you can, right? Yeah, that's right. And yeah. the first lot that took advantage of that was the Windrush generation. Yeah. You know. The, the Jamaicans and 
And I'm quite pleased about that because otherwise ah, me too. wouldn't have known about Scar and Reggae over here. Exactly. But, yeah, you know. exactly. So uh, anyway, they, they carried on calling me a, a Nazi. A Nazi, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah, a Nazi. Yeah. Um, of course. And yeah. I'm totally wrong and I'm into slavery and uh, if I've got a statue, they're going to pull it down and, you know, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, what statue are they supposed to have? <laughs> well, I haven't, but you know what I mean? I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly, but it was that kind of tone of voice. You know, yeah. You know, um, uh, you know, there was a couple of them were going to come and look for me, you know, like, oh, okay. So um, I left that group. That's um, hilarious. Yeah. It's not, it is hilarious, but it's not yeah. at the same time. Yeah. It's, just, it's sad. So, yeah. you know, I was, I was like thinking about this Indian variant, you know, how convenient, yeah. how very convenient, because of course the BAME community, as they call it in this country, are the very ones who are resisting the vaccine take up. Yes. Right. So, you know, let's put the frighteners on them. You know, that's mm. that's that's got to be what's behind it. You know, everybody who knows anything about viruses knows that variants get weaker and weaker. You know, and yet they're saying that this one can even evade a vaccine. <laughs> and now uh, oh. Matt Hancock, health secretary, is saying that they can detect the Indian variant of coronavirus in wastewater. Okay. Right. That's a bit weird, isn't it? So what is wastewater to you? Wastewater, water that's been used by people and in certain extent. Goes down the drains. <laughs> yeah. Right, with your poop. Yep. And then it goes to the water treatment plant. Yes. All right, so... I'm thinking. Hang on a minute, you know. Are, are they are they going to start pushing anal swabs? You know. Oh, God. Do you remember the Chinese come up with that? Oh yes, right. I remember. Yeah, they're yeah. going to do it to. Was it the U.S. ambassador or something? Yeah, yeah. He's going to sh- yeah. shove a fucking probe up his ass and test him oh, for coronavirus. God. But here's the thing, right? In in the water treatment plants, they clean out all the poop and yeah. the bugs and all that kind of stuff. So what are they doing to clear this from the water? Because if they're not doing anything to clear it from the water, it's being piped straight back into everybody's home. Yeah, that's a good point. If they're detecting it there, yeah. you know, they've got to do something, you know, to get it out of the water, you know, yeah, exactly. to neutralize it. Yeah. And if they don't, they're just putting it back through. And that's when we'll all be having anal swabs. That's weird. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the first thing that really fucked me, got me really annoyed on. Yeah, that's, Facebook. yeah, that, I mean, I, that would definitely have annoyed me. I'll be honest, I'm not a big fan of Facebook at the moment no. anyway. No, um, I only use it for work, as you know. Yeah. Well, someone else came up. Um, I, I had um, a message from somebody that I'm friends with on Facebook. Oh, okay. One of these people nice. I, I don't know. I don't know that. Okay. So basically, uh, oh, God, I keep saying basically, by the way. I, I think I broke the world record for that in the last episode. 
so um, I, I got a message through from this person. Like, hey, what's up? Right. Oh, lovely. So good, good strong style. Yeah. Now I kind of already know this is heading towards the territory of scams, right? Yes. So I said, uh, oh, not a great deal, to be honest. What about you? She comes back. I'm good. Are you interested in a hookup? Oh, lovely. I said, go on. <laughs> she goes, what do you do? And where do you live? Uh, so I said, oh, I live in Cardiff. Same here. Oh, right? that's a coincidence, isn't it? And I've already, wow. been, I've already been on this person's page on facebook now and i've checked they do not live yeah. in cardiff right no no of course not no <laughs> so important to point out at this stage that cardiff is in wales there are other cardiffs across the world right yes and this will come into play a little bit later so i'm saying yeah i'm in cardiff she goes same here i'm available do you need my service right now? And how do you want my service, babe, in-call or out-call service? So I'm not really sure what that means, but I went, lol. Uh, yeah, that, so that's to do with escorting. And in-service would be at their premises. Out-service would be oh. to your premises. Oh, okay. yeah. All right. There you go. Thanks. not going to go into how I know that straight away, uh, but it's, uh, it's just right, fact okay. of life. Listen, fact of life. Listen, mate, I was watching a program on My5 last night about students who are having to sort of pay for their educational oh, fees yeah. by escorting and stuff and uh yeah uh they didn't show enough of this oh, lovely redhead but never mind anyway so i said well lol have a good evening i'll be working she comes back and says when are you ready for this so i said um, well Right now is not a good time, to be honest. I'm in a pub with your husband, and he wants to know who I'm texting. <laughs> right? A little bit of time goes on, and I, I text back, Tracy, you still there? <laughs> she comes back, yeah. So when will you be ready? I said, well, your husband made me tell him about our conversation, and he looked a bit stunned, but then he said he would be up for a threesome. So she goes, okay, no problem, I'm available. So I came back and said, great, what's your big turn on? And she came back and went, send me your address. How many hours oh. service do you want? £150 for one hour, £250 for two hours, £350 for three hours, £600 overnight stay. My services include GFE, anal, bareback, Greek, BBBJ, oral, etc. Now, I don't know what a lot of that means. Uh, yeah, some of them I don't. GFE is girlfriend experience. Oh, so, okay. You know, you just go out to, you know, for a night out or something. Right. You know. What's yeah. Greek? I don't know. I don't. I don't think I want to know. Well, I think I, I'm wondering if 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 I know what that is because you know we have a mutual Greek friend who told me this tale once about a holiday he had with. Uh, another one of uh, his mutual musician uh, friends. Um, right. Basically, he said he was he, him and his mate went on holiday together, and they were staying in this hotel. And this woman came up to them, and she was sort of like suggesting that they uh, go and have a threesome. Right. 
Right. Well, he said he didn't want he didn't want anything to do with it, right? But she followed him back to the room and pestered him mostly. And eventually he said, well, look, I'm engaged to be married. The only thing that I could let you do is, is give me a blowjob, right? Right. So he said, he said she was really fat and horrible, actually. He said, and I, I didn't like the look of her at all. He said, so I had to close my eyes, right? He said, and then I started feeling hot breath and stubble on my cheek. Oh. He said, I opened my eyes. And, and his mate was banging her from behind. <laughs> but he, he was touching cheeks with the... Uh... <laughs> so maybe that's, maybe that's what Greek is. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what BBJ is. But I'm, I think she might have put an extra B in there or something. Possibly, so, yeah. Possibly. So anyway, I, I came back and I said, well, we're coming to you, so obviously it's going to be overnight. And she went... Yeah, but you have to make payment before you come. I said, cash on delivery, baby. She <laughs> says, I'm going to get wine to make our time together romantic, and I need oh. to get some toiletries too. And she goes, do you have cash? So I said, oh, yeah, bags of it. Oh, I'm so hard right now. <laughs> she comes back and says, you need to make half of the payment and the rest when you're here. So... I've already got this scammer down from the 600 quid overnighter to 300 quid, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, me and you know we're never going to get the service, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but I've got it down to 300 quid. She's desperate. She's, she's on the hook, right? Yeah. So um, she goes, uh, you need to make half the payment and then the rest when you're here. And I said, your husband said we can spit roast you. Oh, she said, are you ready to make payment now? I said, uh, so I went, I'm just going to the toilet for a pre-wank. I wouldn't want to come too fast. Oh, Jesus. She goes, yeah, but you need to make half of the payment, then the rest when you're here. <laughs> you have to make the payment now. So I said, just one thing, Tracy, you won't be scared of my big black cock, will you? She went, No. You have oh. to make payment now before you start coming. I said, oh, okay. What are your bank details? So she goes, I don't use bank. This is how you will make the payment. Go to the store and get me a Google Play gift card of £100 in three pieces. After getting it, uh, scratch it and take the pick of it, and then you send it to me here. So I went, okay, hang on. She comes back, goes, all right. So I said, look, just before I do this, it's only fair to mention my HIV. Is this going to be a problem? Because I only do bareback and I really love anal. She comes back and goes, not at all. Oh, So I went, Christ. okay, just sorting things out. She comes back and goes, <laughs> Okay, I'm waiting for the card. You will enjoy my service a lot. So I went, hang on a minute. I'm supposed to be in work later. I'm just checking with my crew to see if maybe my custody sergeant will be up for us filming this one in one of the cells. That's always been a major turn on for me. <laughs> she went, okay. 
I said, fantastic. What's your address? I'll send two officers round with a car. Don't panic. They're both CID, but I'll tell them not to put the cuffs on you. They don't know what we're going to do. Oh, my God. So, um, anyway, she wouldn't give me the address, right? So I said, give me your address first, otherwise the deal is off. So she goes, why will you send the cop? I said, well, they work with me. Don't worry. They don't know what we're, that we're going to be filming a sex scene in the cells. I said, have you seen my channel on Pornhub? So uh. she's like, no. So I, I quickly Googled now some, you know, big black gay porn star, right? Yeah. I found one called Cutler X. So I said, right. I'm called Cutler X. I don't normally do it with women. Can you maybe cut your hair short for me? <laughs> Oh, God. She goes, okay. So uh, send me the card. I said, send a photo first. Now, she sends a photograph of this beautiful, busty blonde, right? Uh, so I went, uh, your husband said you're Chinese. What the fuck? She goes, <laughs> lol, Chinese. I'm an American. I went, ha, ha, ha. Your husband always makes me laugh. Anyway, it's amazing that we both live in Cardiff, California. So Cal, actually. Right. And she goes, um, yeah. So I said, did you check out my porn channel? You do know I'm a big black gay alpha, don't you? I'm not sure how you're going to turn me on, really. <laughs> she goes, I will. Go get the card now. Oh, so I'm like, do you want to see my cock? She goes, no. <laughs> I said, well, thanks for staying on the line long enough for us to get a trace. See you soon. Yeah. Right, a car is on the way. She goes, get the card and send it before yeah. you come over. I like just all right, okay, you know, you're done, darling. I've done you, you know, end of. And you know, you just know it's a scammer, obviously. Yeah, uh, I just couldn't believe that I could keep it going for so long. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was a, a bit of raw talent there. Eh? I must do that more often. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Yeah. Oh. So what's what's been going on with you, mate? Uh, I had a job interview uh, last week. The one in the school? Yeah, it was. Yeah. How did that go? So teaching music uh, in some selected schools in my area. Uh, yeah. yeah, I got the job. Oh, wicked, man. I got the job, yeah. So I've got to do some HR stuff first and get all that sorted. Um, and hopefully start as soon as possible then. No. It used to be, I'm sure it still is, that you had to um, have some kind of certification to prove that you're not a kiddie fiddler. Yes. Uh, but I would imagine you've yeah. got that already. I'm new with your people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's got to be done like through different organizations. Uh, so I've got one for me Yeah. working for myself, and I've got to have one for working and in, working for an employer. Um, and I have to have a license as well to work in a school in Wales, which oh. I didn't know. Yeah. That I've got to pay for. But I do get the money back. You've got to pay up front. Right. Well, as, as you know, my ex, Joe, uh, she, she does a lot of teaching in schools. And, uh, yes. you know, it. she she finds it a bit of a nightmare. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she loves it. Don't get me wrong. She loves doing it. But there's always some sort of obstacle, like the piano's been shoved in the, in the corner <laughs> with a, you know, like a load of bins around it or something yeah or there's exactly. no no heating or she's got to go and find the kids and pull them out of lessons and stuff you know oh god yeah so, oh. 
Yeah. 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 Uh, It's all pretty planned out, uh, to be fair, because it's a private company working in uh, state schools. So it's not actually working for the local authority, which is good. Oh, right. Uh, Um, Just pointless me asking you which one of those organisations it is, because I won't know them. No, no. It's just a private one that works in the schools. Um, So it's good, though, because I'll still be on private rates, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So So I'm quite looking forward to that. What else has been happening? Um, I was back in the studio, um, so I was hired to do some bass playing uh, for an artist. Oh, yeah. It was my first time back in a studio, and that was quite exciting and quite fun. Yeah. So how many tracks did you play on? Six. Well, we done five proper tracks. Um, we jammed over uh, a sixth one um, as sort of like a little demo. Uh, but we got it done in sort of record time. We had eight hours to do it, and we yeah. done it in about six hours, All which right, is pretty cool. good. That's yeah. pretty good. Great. Yeah. yeah. That's fun. That's always fun. I've, it's I've good to be to back do... as well. Yeah. I've had to do recordings in the past in... Uh... I've done I've done six track EPs and stuff in in a day live just play yeah. all live. Um, yeah. Most of the time was taken up with setting things up. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. So we, it was only uh, vocals, bass, and drums uh, for this session, and yeah. we we're all in different rooms. Uh, uh, I didn't have a talkback mic though, unfortunately, <laughs> so I uh, had to relay my messages on bass. Um, one. Pluck of the note for yes and two for no, which was quite funny. <laughs> well, if if you'd had microphonic pickups, you could have shouted down them. I could have, yeah. But yeah. alas, I don't. Unfortunately, yeah. I've got nice shielded. Good. Yeah, nice shielded ones, nice quiet ones. <laughs> Those are the days where I used to play music through uh, my bass out of my amplifier from my phone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good time. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, oh, God. Uh, so I've, I've, I'm still resisting the temptation to buy myself another base. It's been oh, hard. Oh, you are, are you? Yeah, it's been really hard, really hard. Um, I think because, you know, we had a rehearsal with the band last week. Oh, right. Or, or the week before. And oh, how it wasn't great for me. Um, right. I'd forgotten quite a few of the songs, which, which is bad. Um, that's, yeah, that's okay though. That's it. I, I would have done as well. It, it was mostly the keys that I'd I'd forgotten. You know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but also I had the drummer right in my ear, oh. and I was finding it very difficult. You know, with with my only one working ear to sort of yeah. hear things properly. And there seemed to be a lot of laughter going on. I don't know whether it was directed at me or what, but um, I, I'm that's probably just my. Uh, newfound paranoia creeping in yeah i probably so i i kind of enjoyed it and kind of didn't uh but i came away from there thinking well if you were laughing at me um you won't be fucking laughing next week or next time we have rehearsal because i'll be totally on top of my game and that's another reason why i've decided not to invest in a bass when i need to be sharpening up on my guitar you know Okay, that's so, a very good reason. Yeah, yeah, that's a good reason. It's the only reason I can think of right now, but it's the one I'm sticking with. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. That makes sense. That does make sense. 
<laughs> so I kind of decided that I'm I'm going to have a change of uh, image for the band as well. For me, I don't care oh, what the okay. others do. I mean, as you know, we're, in the past, it's mostly been, you know, sort of polo shirts, jeans, Dr. Martin's flat cap or a trilby, you know. Yes. But one of my favorite um, stage photos of myself was taken by this absolutely gorgeous young girl photographer up in the new inn, I think it's called, or new crown inn in Merthyr. Oh, up in Merthyr, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, I was wearing a, a stripy T-shirt and a bowler hat. And <laughs> she she took the photographs in black and white. And, and it's one of my favorite photographs. Um, and I, it was a bit annoying, really, because I bought this bowler hat and it was really bloody expensive. But, you know, yeah. the, the inside of, of the hat is round, perfectly round. Yes. And I don't have a perfectly round head, you know. No, I don't think many, many do. No. So it never fitted properly. It was always a bit uncomfortable, and and I and it used to sort of like sit on my ears really, and that shouldn't do that either. No. Um, so I, I had sort of asked at the time what it would cost to get a hat reshaped, and I was told I'd have to send it to this firm in bloody uh, London, and it would cost a fortune. And mm, yeah. so I ended up giving my bowler hat to the singer in in our band, who's you know Sal. It's half yeah. Mal- half Malaysian, right? And he has uh, an Asian head, which is much rounder than a European head, right? Right. So it fits him perfectly. <laughs> I gave it to him. It cost me a lot of money that hat, and I, I it was all I could do to to just give it away, right? Yeah. And he wore it once. Um, oh. That made it even worse. I thought, yeah, it really, really suited him, right? But he only wore it once, and I thought that's that's bad. That is, I, I I'm not happy with that. So no, but I can't ask for it back. I no, not it. really. So then, I, I, well, I went on the inter, interweb and thought there's got to be a way of doing this for fuck's sake, you know? Yeah. And I didn't know, but you can actually buy a hat stretcher, right? Just oh. basically two bits of wood that are curved on the ends with a. a a bolt coming out of the end of each one and then a connecting sort of screw thread thing. And so you can basically jack out the two bits of wood to stretch the hat, right? Oh, that's like my shoe. I've got a shoe stretcher that works quite, uh, so, yeah. quite similar to so that. So it's yeah. like a shoe stretcher. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. What you have to do is moisten around the brim of the hat. Yes. So under that leather band, on the leather band, um, on the felt, and then you, you put the stretcher in, but you steam it as well, right? Oh. So I, I just steamed it over the kettle. I just kept hold, holding the uh, <laughs> button down on the kettle, and um, and it, you know, duly did stretch into the perfect shape. So, but I got this oh, bowl wow. bowl out. I got for twenty quid, and it's fine. It's really good. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So I've now got a bowl hat, and uh, so it's going to be bowl hat and shades, and nice. um, uh, a prison style shirt, right? Mm-hmm. With uh, fifty four forty six on there, which was oh, nice. Toots Hibbert's jail number, right? So if you're into Scar Reggae, our dear listener, uh, Toots Hibbert from Toots and the Maytals, that's where it comes from. Yes. So that's what I'm <laughs> oh, thinking cool. of that. That's cool. 
I like that. I'm just going to carry on wearing the T-shirt that I was provided. Well, <laughs> yes, because it was free. Yeah. Yeah, some bands that you work with, you have to pay for your own merchandise. Stick with us, son. You'll be fine. I got rid of a piece of merchandise from a band yesterday. Did you? So I've got this. Um, some people, I'm not going to name names, have called it my Roy Cropper bag. Right. Okay. It's just like a little side bag, oh, uh, yeah. like a little handbag. Yeah. Uh, very nice, but it's got the logo of the band um, on it. and. Yeah. I'm not associated with those anymore, and I'd rather not be seen with it. Right. Okay. So I ordered a hip bag yeah. from JD Sports because oh, right. I get a defense service discount there. So right. I try and make good use. And it arrived, and essentially uh, it's a bum bag with extra long straps so it can go over over your shoulder and under your arm. Oh, that's that's. Did they, didn't they have a picture of it first? They did, yeah. yeah. And I thought it looked cool, um, yeah. but yeah, essentially it's just a bum bag, and I haven't had one of those since the nineties. <laughs> yeah, we've actually got a guy in work who, twenty-two years ago, turned up on the first day of the job wearing a bum bag. Oh no! And he's been called bum bag, bum bag ever since. Ever since, yeah. Twenty-two years, <laughs> and he keeps going. My name's Andrew. I go, all right, then bum bag. Oh, yeah, they do stick, don't they? Uh, I've got a little something to mention that's sort of clothing related. Oh, go on. Have you seen the Prime Minister's new jackets that he's got? I saw him on the TV today and, um, you know, it it was difficult for me because I, I get this sort of instant sort of gagging reflex going on and, you know, I have to run for a, for a waste paper basket to puke in every time yeah. I see that fraud on the TV. But I did think he was wearing like an Air Force jacket with a, an Air Force badge on it that said Prime Minister underneath it. Yes. So um, over the last couple of days, uh, mainly him and the Home Secretary um, have been wearing jackets which have the title on there, so Prime Minister and Home Secretary. Right. Which I find hilarious. Um, so the jackets that the Prime Minister of wear, uh, has been wearing, um, the other day he was wearing a Royal Navy issue uh, waterproof jacket, uh, which instead of saying Royal Navy on it, has a nice Velcro tab that says uh, Prime Minister, just in yeah. case he forgets who he is. Yeah. Uh, and apparently he forgot who he was again today, because he was wearing a nice bomber jacket, which looked quite smart, to do with the UK Carrier Task Group which All also right. had Prime Minister on it again. Yeah. Um, so hopefully tomorrow you might have a new one. Um, yes. I find it absolutely hilarious. Absolutely oh. hilarious. That it, it, he's wearing these military-style jackets. Well, it's, again, it's to do with this fucking sabre-rattling thing. That <laughs> yes, it really yeah. is. I mean, I say this, right? Put that fat fucker, right, in the front line, right, with a, a Lee Enfield with a bayonet fixed, right? And tell him, you go over the top and lead the way, right? And he'd be out of breath before he even climbs up the top of the trench, you know? Absolutely. He's an absolute fraud and a disgrace and a joke. I absolutely can't stand the sight of him. Yeah. I found it very similar to the way that US or certain US presidents wear sort of presidential sort of flight jackets when they're addressing troops. Yeah, they do. And such, Yeah. I mean, it would be, uh, it, I mean, 
you know, Boris, right? What did, <laughs> what did Trump call him? Uh, he said, oh, they call him Britain Trump, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, but, but there you go, Trump, right? He loved his military parades, wanted military parades all the time. And yet, you know, uh, Donnie Bone Spurs, as uh, oh, yeah. one of our friends <laughs> calls him, uh, you know, dodged the draft. Yeah. Because he had bone spurs, apparently. Yeah, the last US president who actually served was Bush Jr. Yes. Um, yeah. In Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Bush... the last British prime minister who served uh, <laughs> mm. was a long, long time ago. Uh, well, Winston did. Um, Winston did, yeah. And I citation needed, but I think a few of the ones afterwards uh, did as well. Um, sort of 50s, 60s, um, as they were just sort of coming out of the end of the war. They they were at the right age. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was surprised, though, because I looked it up how many members of parliament um, have served in the military and or are in the reserves. And there's quite a lot. Is there? Quite a lot, okay. yeah. But not Boris. No. And what I found interesting is when they're addressing or someone addresses them in the House of Commons, um, normally they say, uh, my right honourable friend. If it's someone who's served or who is serving, it's my right honourable and gallant friend, oh, um, which I find quite interesting. I did not know that. Uh, Ian, yeah. Ian Duncan Smith is one of those, then. Allegedly, yes. No, yes. IDS was a major, I think. He was a major? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, no. That's surprising. As a little aside, right, um, and this is this is how I don't know how I get myself in this shit, right? Oh god! But my my ex wife's grandfather um, ended up in a hospice, right, right. down in uh, Wimborne, and we went to visit him one day, and and it was it was a sad sad sight because this hospital was literally crumbling to bits, was, mm. and there were two women stood on I seen health professionals stood on the reception desk who were paying no attention whatsoever to these old men, right? Uh, There was one guy in there who had a feeding tube up his nose and he had his food bag on a, on a rack on casters that he had to take with him everywhere. And he said he hadn't had uh, a solid meal for 18 months. Right. Wow. And I made some inappropriate joke about meals on wheels and uh, that didn't oh, go down God. well. Uh, no. But then um, I was, I was talking to, you know, the ex-wife's uh, grandfather. Now yeah. he, he'd been staunch labor all his life. Right. And, and he had been a counselor for most of his life until he retired, but he couldn't stand as a labor counselor in Wimborne because he wouldn't have got voted in. So he had to stand as an independent. Oh, but he was fiercely labor, uh, labor, and yet his son was fiercely conservative, right? Oh, no. So there was always that sort of, like, edge. And, and I used to wind him up, see, because he was really easy to wind up. <clears throat> so I was saying to him, uh, oh, I don't know if you know, I said, but you've got uh, a visit today from uh, an MP. And he said, oh, have we? I said, oh. yeah. I said, Ian Duncan Smith is coming to visit you. Now, he'd been in the news, you know, for his sort of horrible 
crimes against humanity with the Department of Work and Pensions, and the you know yes. So I, I did think, oh, you know, this is this is going to go down very badly with old Sid. Anyway, um, he said, "Well, I should be very pleased to meet him. I'd like to have a chat with Ian Duncan Smith." Now, all the time we were having this conversation, there was a fella in the next bed. Well, he was sat on the edge of the bed, and he he seemed to be doing this wobbling thing. Uh, rocking back and forth, and he was rocking more and more and more and more, quite violently. Violently, and I, I didn't know yeah. what he was trying to do. Maybe he was trying to get up. I don't know. But before I could do anything, he he actually landed forehead first on the floor, right? Ooh. Skinned his forehead, right? I mean, just a whole sheet of skin came off on oh, the floor. God. And, you know, he concussed himself and everything. So I, I ran to the, well, I was pressing the alarm buttons first and nobody came, right? Yeah. So I ran to reception and I said, I said, look, an old fella's just fallen off his bed, skinned his forehead. Can you come and sort it out? And they went, yeah, we'll send somebody in a minute. And I went, no, right. I, I said, don't send somebody in a minute. Send them fucking now. I said, this is a private hospice. These people are paying a lot of fucking money for end-of-life care, because let's face it, that's what it is, right? Yeah. And and I forced them to go and deal with him. <laughs> now, I sat down, and I thought, God, fucking hell, I hope I didn't cause that, right? By not paying attention to the fact that he seemed to be, I don't know, trying to get up or something. Yeah. yeah. And I glanced on the end of his bed, and I swear to you, no word of a lie, his name was Duncan Smith. Oh. Right? And he, I know, I thought, oh my God, was that just like, did I spot that? And that put the name Ian Duncan Smith in my head or was it just a bizarre coincidence? Yeah. Know? And because of my tall tale, right, he could have actually killed himself there. I don't know. He certainly done himself an injury. So uh, let that be oh, a, a, a word of warning to you all. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> anyway. Um, I thought oh. I thought we before we get on to your topic, right? I have to tell you yeah. about my purchase of shame this week. Oh, right, right. Now, I I, I have been buying quite a lot of stuff lately, um, and I keep saying, right, that's the last thing I'm going to buy. That's the last thing I'm not buying anymore. That's it. You know, Are you buying useful things or yeah, always always useful things. I mean, I bought a, a milk frother. So I can do my own lattes. Right? Okay, yeah. No, I mean, if you like a latte or a latte, yeah. or whatever you want to call Seems it. Seems you going out and buying them from coffee shops and things. Well, yeah, it was paid for itself already. I mean, how much those things cost? Four, four quid? Yeah. Four pounds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And the rest? Yeah. So the frother was uh, 37 quid. Now, you, it, it, it does hot and cold frothing or latte-style heated milk you know oh, okay. and you can do hot chocolate and all that sort of stuff with it oh, so nice. it's already paid for itself okay because i've That's caught up, okay i've caught up on the 30 or 40 lattes that i wanted to buy but didn't want to spend four quid on <laughs> yeah but that wasn't my purchase of shame okay right the purchase of shame is age related oh no yes uh, don't worry it's not incontinence pads or anything like that it was reading glasses. Oh, uh, okay. Well, the thing is, like about 12 years ago, I had laser surgery done on my eyes, right? Right. 
to correct my short-sightedness. And it's been brilliant and amazing, but they did tell me at the time that I might have to have reading glasses when I get older. I thought, that's bloody bollocks. Surely that's bollocks because I used to be short-sighted. I could, you know, I could read anything from like two millimeters away. Yeah. But it's not to do with that. It's not to do with the focal length. It's to do with the muscles in your eyes losing the strength to, to squeeze the lens enough Oh, to be right. able to read fine print, you know. Oh, okay, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I got myself a set of Dame Edna average reading oh, glasses. But uh, there is an upside to it, and that is that I didn't really want to spend £5.99, uh, but they were the best set of frames. <laughs> and when I took them to the till, they rang up as 59 pence. So. Oh, well. Yeah. Who are you to argue, you know, oh. when it's been bring up like that? Well, well, I did stand there and wait for my penny change, though. So. Oh, of course. So, of course. Yeah. Are they working? Yeah, they actually work really well. Now, the only reason I actually bought them is not because I, I can read most things, no trouble. You know, yeah. when you get some of these lists of ingredients on the back of a, a tin of whatever and you can't read it, it's not a big deal because I'll just use the magnifier on my iphone if i want to right yeah um but the problem is that when i'm making or repairing guitar pickups especially fender Uh, ones that the coil wire is as thin as a human hair right yeah if you've got to thread that several times through an eyelet which is what you anchor it to before you start winding the coil yeah and but you cannot see it then (laughs) you know and, I, yeah. and I, I'll be honest, this has been a bit of a problem for the last five years, which is why oh, okay. one of the reasons I haven't done many. And and I've got some pickups here to rewind. Some of them, are, uh, one pair is uh, a 1961 Fender Telecaster set. Oh, uh, that sounds nice. That sounds well, nice. in very, very poor condition, really poor. Yeah. I mean, to most pe- for most people, it's, it's a write-off. It's in the bin. Uh, I'm I'm restoring them, but it's it's just not being able to see that coil wire was the, a massive problem. Oh, absolutely. So at least I can do that now, and uh, oh, that's good. Sort of back in business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, I also had my um, vaccination as well um, on oh, Monday. Yeah, go on. Uh, you yeah. didn't have any side effects, though, did you? Uh, I had a bit of a sore arm for a day and a half, two days. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was it, really. You didn't have the AstraZeneca, did you? No, no. So people under the age of a certain age um, in my area have to have the Pfizer one or the Moderna, um, right. and they're just pushing the Pfizer one everywhere. So Yeah, well, that's probably yeah. a good thing because um, there have been some uh, problems with... Um, uh, well, there's been a few problems with all the vaccines, really, but there's there's another oh, yeah. one now. I, I forget what it's called. It's not the Moderna one. Um, it's a French one, and there there have been a lot of problems. Oh, dear. Now, I read something on Twitter the other day that there's been a bit of an incident in Plymouth, I believe it was, right. where there have been mass... Uh, Uh, what's the word for it? Uh, Well, it's been an influx of people having to go to hospital there. And they think it's linked to this French vaccine, which has been trialed there. But it's not in the mainstream media. 
you know you won't no. see it reported anywhere but people in plymouth do know about it and they are talking about it on twitter so oh, whether God. there's any factual basis for that or not i don't know but well, we'll that have to does, wait and see on that yeah, yeah 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 major incident declared now that means there is a problem the hospital apparently was totally overwhelmed Christ. so hmm. yeah i hope everyone's okay with it um but yeah that's you know just wait and see what happens yeah that's bad yeah Okay, so you've got a UFO topic this week or something. I have, yes. But you so haven't I... told me what it is, so I'm going in blind to this one. Yeah, so this is quite a weird um, story um, that hasn't been reported on much. Uh, there's a documentary being made uh, about it now. Um, I think it started production last year. But okay. We go back to 1994. Okay. To Aerial School in Rua, Zimbabwe. Oh, right. Yes, and this is where 62 children reported seeing a UFO and strange beings during their morning break time. Yeah, go on. So I sort of just heard a little snippet, an audio snippet from another podcast about this topic, um, and it's right up my street. Oh, <laughs> uh, but you... you... You should reference that podcast, I think. It is quite big. It's quite a big podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the biggest podcast. Oh, right. Yeah. It's that one. Okay. <laughs> I don't think they need much advertising. They don't need any advertising. No, especially not from the likes of me. So, oh, Rua is near, um, I'm not, here we go, pronunciation, Hooray, Harare. Yeah, um, I think it's Harare. Harare, yeah. Uh, so it's just east of that, um, nice little sort of village town, um, and sort of following, you know, normal, like sort of British, um, schools sort of workings. Um, they had their morning break and they're out in the schoolyard playing. Now, they're all like, they're having a really nice time and one silver craft descended. They had four other little sort of smaller um what's supposed to be spacecraft around it um and it landed down on a hill behind uh the schoolyard so it was like out of bounds of the school like past the fence yeah uh <laughs> so all the kids after seeing this sort of ran to the fence because you know what the hell's going on this silver disc thing has just landed and there's some other little bits here and there floating about uh, and they sm- saw this small creature walk around on top of the craft while right. another came out of, came out, and had a look at the children. Oh. Which is quite weird. Uh, he was dressed in all black in a very tight suit. And the children said he had big eyes like rugby balls. Oh, okay. Which I found quite a, quite a nice comparison there yeah. to rugby. <laughs> all right. The children had direct eye contact with this creature. And this is where it's 
kind of gets a bit weird. Uh, and there seems to have been some kind of communication with the children telepathically. Yeah. From the one that sort of come up and had a little look. Now, according to the people who were there, and we'll go into this a little bit later, um, but they were like within arm's reach, just the other side of the fence. Wow. Um, and this creature, alien, um, whatever, uh, started talking to them telepathically about the state of the world and about what we are doing to the planet, the destruction, and how bad things with technology will be happening. So this is 1994. So, yeah, you know, yeah. technology's at a certain uh, sort of limit. Things that, you know, just coming up then, uh, you know, a couple of years later to the internet boom and things. Yeah. Um, everyone had big mobile phones. So <laughs> yeah. kind of had something to do with that. But what a weird thing to say. Um, so they had direct contact um, and it's telepathically talking to them. Um, a lot of the children were very traumatized. Some were excited, which I completely understand. I can imagine that, that some yeah. of the kids would be uh, quite excited. Yeah. Um, but the youngest of the children were the most traumatized. So this is like um, infants and junior school together type uh, primary education. Yeah. Uh, all the kids ran back screaming to the teachers and obviously they didn't believe them. <laughs> so at the end of the day, they went back home um, complaining, you know, telling their parents what happened. Uh, and they wanted uh, to know what had happened. The parents, you know, very angry. What the hell's going on? Yeah. Air, aircraft or UFO was landed, and my kid, my kid is talking to the alien with rugby-shaped eyes. Um, yeah. So they asked for the school, and they had a meeting. So the next day, and soon after, in that week, um, the children were asked to draw pictures of what they had seen, and they did this separately. So each child was either in a separate room right. or very yeah. much distanced. Yeah. And all their pictures were exactly the same. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, can I can I cut in there with a little story about that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, because, you, you know, I, I mentioned in another podcast that I got held up in an armed robbery once. And, oh, yes. And the three of us in the crew had to do photo fits. Um, well, actually, they're... They drew sketches still in those days. Oh, a proper right? sketch artist. Oh, that's yeah. cool. And um, when we compared all, we were shown all three sketches afterwards because we all did them separately. Mine and my mate Terry's pictures of the one guy were almost identical. Right. The third crew member, the driver, right? If, if you remember, I, I told you he set up the robbery. Yes. He'd been one. See, there were two guys that robbed us. One was white, one was black. Right? I didn't mm. see the black guy's face clearly enough. Okay. What the white guy I did see because he was in my face. Right. And same with Terry. Right. Um, uh, the driver who was black, right, could not identify the white guy at all. He had no idea what he looked like, even though he was in with us with a gun in the right. van. Right. The so they asked him to draw a picture of the black guy. Now I'd said that, you know, the black guy had a baseball cap on and dreadlocks, blah, 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 you know, right. Mm. This guy who's black says, 
I'm telling you now, I'm a black man. I know black hairstyles. He had a curly perm, right? <laughs> and when we when we looked at the, the his photo fit, he had, he had a blank face, no detail at all. Oh. Right? <laughs> I could not give details, any sort of description of what this guy's face looked like, other than that he had a curly perm. And uh, so, oh, yeah, so we would expect, in a way, certainly on the same day, if it was done on the same day, all those kids really to be drawing something very similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I found that really, like, you know, they were all separated, you know, a bit of time had passed and they all remembered it quite vividly. Um, I found that pretty cool. So, uh, BBC television crew <laughs> arrived. Yeah. Uh, as they do. Um, and a Harvard professor of psychiatry, John E. Mack, visited the school and filmed interviews with the children. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, so presumably those films are available somewhere. Uh, yes. Um, they've sort of been hidden away as the new documentary that's being made. They've uh, got the exclusive license. For uh, them I now. see. I'm with you. Yeah. 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 So I, I couldn't find any of the videos, unfortunately, uh, yeah. just the stories about it. Uh, <laughs> now, he, the actual uh, film interviews, um, there was an assistant there. They were assisted by a South African uh, producer called Nikki Carter, who had already made a, so a short documentary on it uh, for sort of the South African uh, national TV uh, yep. okay. station. And he had a half-brother who was actually at the school on that day. Wow. But he was off sick the day that it happened. Oh. <laughs> typical. <laughs> Just typical. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So there was no doubt that the uh, children were telling the truth, um, the producers thought. Um, and when they were interviewed by um, this uh, professor with all his professional skills, um, he found that they were being very truthful in his um, sort of expert opinion. Okay. Um, but when they started researching the phenomenon um, of alien abductions, um, they sort of uh, looked into, um, and he'd done a little bit of research then with other people from around the world who had a similar experience. Um, <laughs> And his university started investigating him because he sort of went down a rabbit hole um, of alien uh, and UFO and abduction stories. And it was sort of like taken away from his main work at Harvard, unfortunately. Um, and it was the first time that a tenured professor was subjected to such an in-depth investigation, all to do with his sort of all research and interest in, in the yeah. actual UFOs. But doesn't that sound like they're trying to cover it up or trying Absolutely. to silence him? Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Oh, So Mac, uh, the professor, uh, he's quite guarded in his interpretation of the abduction. Um, and, you know, he took them at face value, he said, um, and he would take them seriously, um, even though there was no way to sort of, you know, get any sort of conclusive proof apart from the testimony um, yeah. of these children. Um, he would never say yes, that they were aliens taking people, but he said that there was a compelling, powerful phenomenon 
um, what you can't account for, really, and that's the only sort of logical, if you can say the word logical, uh, sort of explanation for it, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he said that the subject uh, had been approached as scientifically as possible, and there are questions that still need to be asked, um, and it's just like a court case where evidence, you know, needs to be presented properly, um, just like in a court of law. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's all perfectly sensible. I can't see a problem with that myself. Yeah, he's doing it quite academically, which I, I quite like. Yeah. Nothing really came of anything there. Uh, he went back to America, and this documentary was sort of broadcast. Um, I can't find any sort of copies. There probably are some out there. Um, I looked for the BBC sort of uh, news um, program on it and the uh, South African uh, news one yeah. couldn't find anything. Um, but now we're in, you know, the 2000s, uh, sort of about 2008, 2007, 2008. And all the kids who were there have sort of grown up and, you know, yeah, spread sure. about Africa and the world. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> This is where it gets quite interesting here. Um, in 2004, the professor, um, he had this uh, inquiry, um, basically saying that uh, they were just opinions of this professor. The university said it's just opinion. It doesn't take into any concern about his academic uh, sort of freedom um and he can study what he wants um and they're just opinions and not fact in 2004 uh the same uh mac uh, was killed by a drunk driver while visiting uh, london to lecture at a te lawrence conference oh, apparently okay. he looked the wrong way while crossing oh, a road in the uk all right okay. which i find just awful yeah. um yeah what what side of the road do they drive on in uh, Zimbabwe, did you say? Uh, Zimbabwe, they'll drive on the left. You sure? I guess, yeah. yeah. But he was American anyway. Oh, so. he was American. Oh, yeah, okay. he was American. Oh. Yeah, he was the Harvard one. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, see. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. So Zimbabwe yeah. used to used yeah. to belong to us. Yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of the places there. Um, so yeah, they probably drove on the left there, and probably still do to this day. <laughs> so. Um, 2008-ish um, a project. So the original sort of documentary maker um, contacted another one, so the one who had the half-brother um, who was right. off school that day. Um, this producer called Nickerson um, set about contacting those people who had been among the 62 people who had witnessed the sighting. And they're all over the place. And they, at the time, they were mainly sort of university students. Uh, in yep. Canada, the US, New Zealand, and Britain. Wow. And it actually wasn't that uh, difficult to track them down, really. Um, they put up posts online um, and found them quite easily. Um, while they were contacting people, um, some of the actual students um, were told by their parents, you know, never to talk about it ever again, and that she'd imagined it all. Um, but then, some of the other students had actually posted their stories online uh, for others to read. Um, 
and others who were there had forgotten about it or sort of suppressed that memory and sort of like walked upon these stories online and they sort of were going, oh my God, you know, I remember yeah, that. Yeah. It wasn't yeah, just the imagination. But don't you yeah. think it's a bit weird that some parents had told kids, you know, never speak about that again? Yeah, I mean, I don't know the sort of culture um, in Zimbabwe. Uh, it's a highly Christian country. Um, but, you know, if you're going around talking about aliens, you're going to attract the wrong sort of attention. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know. No. Um, so Nickerson, this new uh, producer, uh, who's contacted all of these uh, ex-students, um, I found out, and after interviewed them, uh, basically that none of the stories had changed at all. Not one detail. It was exactly the same as that's, back that's then. That's really interesting. I it can is. never never quite decide whether that's because it's um, true or whether it's because it's scripted. I just don't know. Yeah, we went through this, didn't we, with um, old Travis? Uh, yeah. yeah, Travis Walton. Yeah, yeah. But he made a few changes, didn't he, towards the end? Yeah, yeah, slip-ups, yeah. yeah. So they went back to the school and he interviewed uh, teachers and workers who were there at the time. Um, and he also came across some people from two different schools in the local area who had similar sightings on the same day. Yeah. So there were multiple sort of UFOs there, perhaps the one landed there and the others landed at other uh, schools. Yeah. Uh, so he's, tr- he's currently in South Africa, uh, trying to track the ones who are living in South Africa um, and he's following up leads um, and actually still trying to contact and try and find all of the remaining uh, school children there. Yeah, cool. Yeah. There's a sort of a uh, <laughs> little bit after that that I haven't got too much information on, um, but apparently he had some um, in America contacted them and they booked out a conference center and got them together asked them to draw the same pictures that they drew on that day and pictures of these creatures and again it was all the same that's really interesting because because i would have probably maybe drawn something differently all those years later not wildly differently but no but yeah you know because your artistic skill changes as well yeah, they were eerily uh, yeah. similar. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, so currently still, you know, looking at the leads and trying to get all of the children or were children uh, together, interviewing them, comparing all the testimony and just trying to work out exactly what happened. Wow. Yeah. So uh, is, is this as, as far as we've got with this thing before the documentary is done? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the the only part that we've got up to really, he's talked to a few of them, got a few of them together who hadn't seen each other in years. Yeah. Um, and everything's the same. The story's the same. The timeline is the same. The pictures are the same. Now, uh, you were saying that um, they were communicating telepathically, right? Yes. Now, this always interests me because it tends to suggest that they know your language, right? Yeah, yeah. Because how else would you understand what they're saying? Mm. Maybe they don't need to do that. Um, I mean, language, after all, that you're 
listening to through your ears is a series of sound waves. Yes. Um, so it may may be that they know uh, how that translates down the um, the nerves in your yeah. your cochlea, I suppose it is. Um, yeah. And how that then presents itself as a series of what what are essentially electrical pulses in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to communicate telepathically, surely that means you've got to essentially create electrical pulses within the brain. Yeah. And maybe you can do that in such a way that you don't need to know their language. Yeah. Um, perhaps is it like, you know, read spot frequency, a human brain reads yeah. um, and sort of works it out from there. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. It's um, it's, it's always one of those things that puzzles me. Um, you know, um, I, I was uh, was asking Junior, the drummer in in the Navarones, one day, uh, because he's from Brazil, right? Uh, yeah. And so he speaks Portuguese and English. Right. Uh, he may speak other languages. I, I'm not sure because his dad's of German origin and his mother's of Italian origin, actually. Oh, okay. Right. So he may. Uh, speak lots of different languages, but certainly English and Portuguese, which is yeah. the language they speak in Brazil. So I asked him one day, I said, um, do you dream in, when when you're over here, do you dream in English or Portuguese? And he said, English. Oh, what? <laughs> you know, how mad is that? When That's he goes back crazy. to Portugal, within a couple of days, uh, not Portugal, Brazil, but in a couple of days, he's dreaming in Portuguese. <laughs> you know. Wow. I, yeah. I suppose that's to do with, you know, your subconscious sort of uh, taking on what you're sort of taking in throughout the day, I suppose. Yes, it is. It is because your, your is brain cool. just sort of um, reorganizes and tries to yeah. sort out the events of the day. So, oh, that's interesting. That's cool. Yeah, it's, it's quite mad, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like so, um, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny how people can switch languages, you know. Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I went out with a Turkish girl for years and um, uh, we we were going to meet up in town one day right yeah uh, now uh, over here in Cardiff now obviously um, she'd been speaking nothing but English while she was over here right yeah and I sort of gave her a rough idea where to meet me and, right. and I, I spotted her walking through uh, so I called after her in Turkish Right. Oh, right. But I only knew a couple of words, so I just went, "Oh, Mahaba, Fatma go Mahaba." You know, she turned around and just spoke to me fluently in Turkish, right, as if I was a Turk, <laughs> and she knew for well I only knew a couple of words of Turkish. You know, <laughs> and it's just amazing how the brain can switch like switch. that. Switch, yeah. yeah. So that's, really, that's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So these, anyway, come back to our aliens, you know. I've, I've yeah, so another thing really was why do they turn up in, you know, a quite remote place um, in Southern Africa to children, which I find quite weird. But well, there's some ideas. There are some ideas. Yeah, go on. So a lot recently, really, um, you know, UFOs have been spotted by the military um, and the military sort of take UFOs as a threat, uh, which I don't blame. Um, 
but by sort of landing and you know going around these you know not very populated areas you know they can sort of get away with a few things uh, a little bit more yeah. rather than you know being off the coast of america or over you know a military installation somewhere yeah so that's my sort of theory and some other people's theories of why they sort of chose um africa really and zimbabwe in particular just because of the lack of you know armament and military that yeah. will you know be able to tackle ufos yeah i mean that's that's a bone of contention for me anyway you know yeah <laughs> i've listened to endless podcasts about ufos and it really gets on my tits when you get some ufo expert on there talking about how we brought down a UFO with our radar. All right. Uh, All right. Do you fucking know what radar is and how it works? Clearly not. You know? <laughs> and, and for them to suggest that a spaceship can travel light years, because that's what it would have to do. Right. Yeah. It comes through our atmosphere. Right, so you know, you gotta have heat shields and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. To then be brought down by a reflected radio signal. I mean, (laughs) fuck, you know, just now. I've used radar and sonar in the past. Yeah. And it's good. It's shit as well. (laughs) At the same time, yeah, Yeah. it's good, but it's completely useless. I, I'm gonna say a percentage. 85% 85% of the time, it's very inaccurate. All <laughs> oh, right. And it just isn't a weapon. No. You know? No. It's no, not a fucking not. weapon. Uh, and, you know, I just think these people should just just stop talking because you're talking out of your asshole and it's very, very easily debunked, you know? Yes. And I want to get to the truth. I, you know, yeah. I'm not. I'm not a skeptic. I want to. I want to believe, right? But don't talk bollocks to me, you know. Yes. Just don't even start talking bollocks. But you'd be surprised how many of them do. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. So. Shot down know, my radar. Yeah. <laughs> now I would think that yes, perhaps you don't want to be bothered by. Yeah. You yeah. know. Maybe don't jets. want to be tracked or jets, you know, yeah. buzzing you, know, you and any everything. Yeah. If you've That's got to land, you've got to land for some reason. And that's, uh, one of these aliens got on, on the roof of the craft, yes, right? Yes, did, yeah. Now, I'm sure he didn't get on top of the roof for the view, right? No. Because as pretty it, as it might, it probably is in Zimbabwe. But they'd already but, seen yeah. the view, right? When yeah, they were from, flying yeah. over, right? <laughs> yes. Maybe there was a technical issue uh, that he had to get on the roof and, you know, like somebody forgot to close the petrol flap, you know, that type yeah, of thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, a very small well, the indicator's thing. gone. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe there was a bit of, uh, I don't know, maybe a bit of damage they needed to check on as they came through our atmosphere. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? But, you know, it's it's probably something very, very simple and straightforward if this happened at all. I, uh, I'd like to think <sighs> it did happen. I'd like to think it did as well. I, I'm, you know, I'm not 100. I never will be. But what I want to know, yeah, right, is, and and I haven't seen this described. Were these aliens like 
greys. They talk about the eyes being rugby ball shaped. Okay. Yes. But they said they were wearing black suits. Now, were the suits all over or? So they were um, sort of cut off, like like a wetsuit or right. flight okay. suit, yeah, but yeah. very tight, so like yeah. compressed. Right. Um, so more like a wetsuit, really, um, and sort of a white or grey coloured skin and these big eyes. Right. So they no did visible mention, mouth. They did mention that then. Yeah, no visible right. mouth or nose. Oh. Um, There's been a few... Um incidents where people have uh mentioned aliens like that who had no visible mouth that's interesting yeah yeah Yeah. but the other Uh, thing really was you know the one bloke i'm gonna call him a bloke you know he's up on top of his ufo having a a fiddle yeah and the one just wanders over to the children um which i find quite interesting maybe you know talking about you know the destruction of the earth and bad things with technology coming perhaps he just you know, told them as sort of, you know, the next generation while yeah. he was there, um, giving well, them a warning maybe or frightening them or I mean, give perhaps me, he mistook them for adults. Give me a re- Yeah, well, I mean, they, they're usually quite small, aren't they, apparently, these greys? Yes. And, yeah. and uh, although apparently there are several races of greys and some are quite tall, but um, let's assume for a minute that, you know, they were about the same height as him. You might have thought they were yes. adults, yeah. Yeah. Now, can you give me a recap on what sort of message he was putting across to them? Yeah, so the message was um, the Earth is being destroyed uh, yeah. to do with sort of the environment, climate, and bad things with technology are coming. Yeah. Or the invention of new technologies is going to be the demise of the Earth. Yeah, right. Doesn't sound good to me. <laughs> no. But this is this is not the first time I've heard this message given out, and oh, okay, um, okay, you know there've been several examples of of that apparently. Uh, right, it, that's it's, onto something. Well, it, it's something that grinds my gears a bit, to be honest. Um, okay, because you know there are people who uh, who talk about that a lot. Yeah. about how they're here to warn us about our impending doom. Um, and, and there are others who uh, are here to give us a spiritual uh, uh, sort of encounter and, you know, oh, okay. to, to, to bring us closer to, I, I suppose, God and spirituality or whatever it may be. Right. And, and I, I just think, no. No, I don't think no. they're here for that. You know, I just don't yeah. believe it. If they were here for that, why wouldn't you say, as a government, uh, admit to that? You know, because oh, you could yeah. say, look, you know, the, yes, we are being visited by aliens. However, you know, they come in peace and they have this message for us where we really need to start taking care of. Uh, our environment and you know etc and stop killing yeah. each other and stop making nukes and all this stuff and, uh, yeah you know i just don't believe it it's a current topic you know global, is, yeah global warming what actually what happened to global warming let me tell you right it is may the 21st right yeah what's the weather been like today where you are non-stop rain and it's still raining now yeah uh, did you step outside the door today? I did. You did, right? 
Um, I was out there on, on the job today and I can honestly yeah. say, right, I was blown and not in a good way, right? <laughs> I was fucking blown in a, it was like a hurricane out there. It was like a, a monsoon, right? Yeah. Oh, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. It was absolutely ridiculous. And yeah, as you say, nonstop rain, you know, yeah. uh, I, as, as you know, I, I deliver the, the mail. I'm a mail postman, right? Yeah. There is no fucking point in delivering in this weather, right? Because it instantly turns to papier-mâché, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, we've had 450 years to get the hang of it. And no, we're still delivering paper in the rain. Yeah. You know? This isn't global I, I warming. I never thought about that. I never thought about that, actually. Yeah. This isn't global warming, right? This So... I don't know if you noticed, but they dropped global warming and now they've started calling it climate change. Climate change, change. yes. The climate has changed many, many, many times, right? Right. And you can't blame people for that, right? right. Certainly not the previous incidents. Well, no, no. No. <laughs> you know, I am, I'm not a climate change denier. It's no. happening. It is happening, right? Yes. But, you know, just look at what's happening and why, right? You know, we, we, we know full well that there are shady, shadowy organizations that are forever trying to change the weather patterns, yeah. right? Seeding hurricanes and trying to shift the weather. Yes. Right? So, for example... Um, now I'm just going to put a little disclaimer here, right? I don't right. want I don't want our viewer in America, our listener in America, to be thinking that I'm anti-American because I love America, and when I lived there, it was the best time of my life. But I, okay. you know, you have to you have to agree uh, that they do do these things where they try and change the weather. And yes, it's it's I can see why. I mean, take, for example, uh, the whole Midwest, I think they call it, was was Dust Bowl at one time. Yeah. Right? yeah. Now, what happened was they they decided to make these enormous farms, right? Um, yeah. And the only way you can do that is by clearing the land of trees and hedges and, you know, things like that. But as soon as you get drought, you're going to get a Dust Bowl. Yeah. Uh, okay, and that's what happened. And it was disastrous, and they learned from it. But you know, there's this organization called Harp, right? Oh, uh, right. Yeah. You know about Harp? Uh, yeah. They're, they're forever dicking about with the weather and what have you. Now, yeah. if you can, if you can push, uh, say the Gulf Stream, which comes from the Gulf of Mexico, push that around, that will change the weather elsewhere yes. in the world, right? Yes. And if you can push the rain clouds down to the Midwest, you're not going to get your dust bowl anymore, you know? Exactly, And that's yeah. where they're growing huge amounts of crops and stuff. It all makes perfect sense, but you are fucking up things for the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, <you know? laughs> very true. So yeah. we've, we've got two things. We've got the jet stream and the Gulf stream, all right? Yeah. And, and if you watch how those affect Britain, for example, you can you can see that if, if they move up or down, we're going to get a very very different climate. You know? Yes, and you know, 
being a being an outdoor worker for the last 21 years i have become quite accustomed with weather patterns um, yeah. you know for example if we have a hot uh, april kiss goodbye to your summer because you're not gonna have one right it'll be wet um, yeah. now we've had a rainy end of april and all of may so far we have yes that would make me normally think well so if it was a wet april i'd be thinking we're in for a good summer but now that's okay. pushed into may as well i'm not so sure i th- i think that that's a new new fuck up for me that is and uh hmm. do you so, have any prediction i'm i'm gonna say um you might have a burst of hot weather in june and then it'll go back to rain again you know okay thank you weatherman we'll have to yeah. come back to that in the future and see if it's correct or not well yeah <laughs> a, uh, my disclaimer there is that i, I yes. do i do i'm seeing a new pattern this year okay you know. now in previous years i've i've noticed that you know we quite often get an october where it rains all of october you know, yeah and then you get a lot of standing water on the ground and yeah and so on one year it was all through September. It rained every day through the September sort of thing, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that 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 tends to suggest then quite a mild winter, and okay, you know, and then and then you get all the all your plant life thinking it's spring when it isn't, you know. And it, oh right, yeah, 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 I know. But yeah. also, if you get all that standing water, your, your crops are rotting in the ground before they've had a chance to to actually germinate properly and things yeah. like that. So yeah, climate. Climate change is nothing new, but if we have anything to do with it, I would have expected the biggest climate change to have happened during 1914 to 1946, 47. Okay. When we were just blasting shit (laughs) into the atmosphere, blasting crap out of the ground solidly, you know. Yeah. Um, in two world wars. And then, of course, you've got nuclear tests, stuff like yeah. that. Nobody talked about climate change back then. No. Yeah. No. Um, now, maybe it's it's uh, as a result of nuclear testing that we, we get strange little people like Greta Thunberg turning up um, with balmy ideas. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't but, know either. Yeah. I've got my own thoughts on climate change. Yeah. And yeah, I I believe a lot of it's natural and I believe that some things that humans do, not individuals, because I don't think individual you know, actually you know, myself, you know, lighting a candle here is gonna affect it as much as, you know, a actual industrious country, you know, pumping yeah. the air full of rubbish. Um that's my sort of thought on it, really. Um, it's just exacerbating the situation. In I mean, ways. you know, there's always consequences to what you do, you know. Oh, and, absolutely, yeah. And if you are going to go hacking down the rainforests, then there, there will be consequences. Yes. Um, mostly to drainage, really. Ah. Uh, because a lot of people bang on about, uh, you know, trees are converting uh, carbon dioxide into oxygen as part of the yeah. photosynthesis process that is true but actually most photosynthesis uh oh, i might be wrong about the photosynthesis bit but most 
carbon dioxide is actually processed in the sea and returns oh, okay. oxygen. So <laughs> it's it's not quite as critical as people would say. But however, um, when they talk about pumping us pumping CO two into the air, yeah. uh, that that is extra food for plants, right? Oh, uh, yes, yeah. So. You know, it's not really going to cause global warming. You know, gases do not cause warming effects. End of. You know, they just don't. If anything, they block out, they can block out the sun, the strength of the sun, right? Yes. And that's why we don't, we're not walking around sunburnt all the time. Oh, yeah. All right. So, you know, but anyway, uh, so, I, I I need to do my own a uh, bit more research into that. I'm not really up to date with yeah. climate science as such. Um, well, I, yeah. I, I I am I am talking from memory here rather than something I've oh, scripted yes. or written yeah, down. Of you know? Yeah, and, and you know a lot of this show is is you know off the top of our heads or memory or whatever. So we, yes, yeah, citation possible. needed. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. In, in in fact, in in the first show when I was talking about. Um, uh, Edward the seventh. Uh, it was actually Edward the eighth. So uh, yeah, it was a oh, classic, right. <laughs> classic right there. But I mean, you know, we're not. I'm not hooked up to a computer. Uh, no. going through this stuff. Oh, definitely. No, so, no. but yes, yeah, so I, I find it really interesting that you know all these kids are saying the same thing about these aliens. Yeah. Same descriptions. You know, the drawings are the same. The story yeah. hasn't changed. We're we're, we're told. Yeah. Um, it's just the message. I just don't. I don't get it really. No, I uh, mean, it, it could be a factual message from these creatures, or someone sort of latched onto the story and sort of inputted their own sort of uh, ideology onto it. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, I'd like to think it's true, and uh, I'm sort of eighty percent there. 80% there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose the problem is that if if you're going to communicate with somebody telepathically, yes. um, the recipient is unable to record it <laughs> yeah. in, in a way that the rest of us could, you know. Yeah, you can't, you know, record audio from that or, you know, Notate it down that way, you know, it's just word of mouth then from that. But not all the children were contacted telepathically. It was only a select few as well. That's interesting. Um, Yeah. Well, I suppose, um, thinking about my own childhood, I probably wouldn't have been contacted either because I would have been the one that wasn't paying attention. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm still looking out the window, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Where's everyone gone? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm about, I'm about 80% there. Yeah. Just about. Now, um, I, I I had heard that uh, particular incident before. Right. And um, I'm pretty sure there was a similar one in France. Uh, oh, okay. As, as well. So it would it would be quite good to do a compare and contrast on those two, actually. Yes, it would. It's certainly, it's it's pretty rare, really, that people talk about um, 
UFO or alien encounters in Europe. It's yeah. kind of mostly in America. So it's um, so even though this one isn't Europe, it's quite refreshing to talk about one that happened outside of America. Yeah, and, that's and what in, I thought. Yes, yeah. and especially Zimbabwe. I mean, you know, why would it have happened there instead of a populated, you know, city, you know, a metropolis? Well, may, uh, I found it quite interesting that it was, it was in a completely different place. Yeah, it might have been that they they were just viewing Africa as being a big safari park, you know, and uh, yeah, maybe, you yeah, know, you never know, yeah. And why why go to uh, Longleat when you can go there? <laughs> exactly. Know? Yeah. Exactly. So, and of course, you know, if you were uh, an alien species coming to this planet, I mean, how would you know? Who to get in touch with first? Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> there's a lot like, of people. Yeah, can you imagine approaching a lion, and uh, you know, you'd come to a fairly sticky end, wouldn't you? You know. Uh, yeah. So uh, I don't know. Well, perhaps it's because you know, essentially, the cradle of civilization being Africa—that's where it started. Perhaps you know, going from there, maybe I—I do, I don't know. Um, yeah. But if you say, you know, if. The one you said in France where something very similar happened. Um, perhaps it's a thing that they're doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, perhaps they're I, teaching the kids something. <laughs> I, I might be wrong about that, but again, that's, you know, from memory. And, yeah, uh, oh, we'll, I, we'll look that up. Yeah, I don't have all these things on the tip of my tongue, but I'll no, certainly uh, no. look into that one. Yeah. So uh, really good. I'm looking forward to that documentary. When do they say it's coming out? Uh, 2022, hopefully. Still a lot of work to be done on it. Uh, okay, uh, that's that's a long way off. It uh, is. Although as you get back. older, as you get older, it's it's not so far off, you know. Yeah. Can I read you a quote a moment from this? Um, yeah. I just come across it now. Um, the one who's doing the documentary said... Uh, while trying to find everyone who was involved, everyone's fucked off to Canada or the UK or died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Winke, 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 winke. Denn zum Winken gibt es immer einen Grund. So, this week's Nazi is Hans Ulrich Rudel. Oh, okay. Right, now, this is a guy, he was, uh, he was a Prussian, and he was born on the 2nd of July in 1916. His dad was a Lutheran minister called Johannes Rudel. Now, you know, turns out that he was a bit of a, a knob at school, didn't learn very well, uh, and he, but he was mad on sports. He was a good sportsman, apparently. Oh, okay. Uh, he, he was sent to uh, uh, a humanities-oriented gymnasium in Lauben. <laughs> uh, so it was kind of, you know, a bit religious and a bit uh, sports-related. Yeah. So... Um, you know, next thing you know, he's like a lot of other German kids, you know, uh, he's joining the Hitler Youth in 1933. Uh, yeah. 
can't judge him on that really because after all you know it was like their version of the scouts really yeah i think every sort of little boy was (laughs) sort of signed up to that they were all doing that but you know it, it did mean that when he graduated there in 36 uh he had to take part in the reich labor service which was a compulsory thing about i suppose a bit like national service okay yeah yeah but from there you see he could go on and and join the military if he wanted to and he joined the luftwaffe Mm. and uh, they they actually trained him to fly planes as an air reconnaissance pilot okay Mm. right now here's the thing see now he he actually wanted to be uh, a dive bomber stuka dive bomber pilot but um you know, sometimes you, you can't sort of, you, you know, I mean, you can look at things on Wikipedia and what have you and you'll get the bare bones. But, yeah, you know, I go searching for documentaries, even if it's like a 10 minute thing on YouTube. And um, I, I found one the other day where a, a, a German uh, ace from the war was talking about um, all the pilots that he came up against in the war. And one of them that he mentioned was Rudel. Hmm. And he basically... He said that, oh, you know, um, we were preparing to attack Crete uh, when Rudal turned up uh, saying that he wanted to be a Stuka dive bomber. And basically our air commandant said, no, <laughs> you're not getting one of my planes. You're not bloody good enough. Yeah. Uh, and he was he was considered to be just not good enough. Uh, yeah, you yeah. Fly, fly a slow little plane you know doing a bit of reconnaissance but you're not a you're not a fighter pilot or a dive bomber pilot no uh, and uh he was sort of like sent packing with his tail between his legs <laughs> but you know this this guy that was doing this interview said you know we just couldn't believe that later on we were hearing about this war hero called uh hans ulrich rudel we, we thought well can't be our hands Ulrich Rudal. he was shit yeah you know? <laughs> but you know basically um you know he he flew as an air observer during the invasion of Poland you know, okay. did long range reconnaissance missions and uh it, through that he became a regimental adjutant for the 43rd aviators training regiment based in Vienna hmm. So, nice. you know, he was pretty safe then. You know, he wasn't sort of uh, facing spitfires or anything. No, no. But, you know, he did manage to get himself into training as a Stuka pilot in early 41. Hmm. And he was posted to uh, one Staffel, Sturzkampfgeschweder 2. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting better at this. You are. Yeah, you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, they got moved to occupy Poland then, you see, in preparation for Operation Barbarossa. Yeah. Uh, which was the invasion of the Soviet Union. Anyway, uh, September the 21st, 1941, he took part in an attack on the Soviet battleship Marat of the Baltic fleet. Right. Uh, now, obviously, this ship was a big threat uh, to the German Navy and the ship was duly sunk at its moorings. 
on the 23rd of September 1941, it was hit by one 1,000 kilogram bomb. Oh, for oh, our, our uh, listener, that's 2,200 pounds. Uh, it was hit near the forward superstructure, and uh, you know the result of that was the as when the bomb penetrated the decks and exploded, it set up a chain reaction in the forward magazine and just oh. ripped the front end of the ship to bits. Bloody bet it did, Christ. Yeah, 326 men dead, and ship goes down, settles in eight, uh, 11 meters of water. God. Who gets credited with that? Our old friend Hans Ulrich Rudel. Oh, right. It was the only bomb that hit the ship, and it was him that did it. Uh, that was the news that reached the German uh, Luftwaffe in Crete. And that's when they were all saying, well, I can't be our Rudel, he was shit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, uh, it was, you know, he'd obviously uh, got his shit together at this stage. And so uh, <laughs> he, uh, his unit then, you know, was uh, sent to take part in Operation Typhoon, which was Army Group Center's attempt to capture the Soviet capital. You know, so yeah. they, was, they, they were still doing this, you know, sort of shock and awe type of thing where. Uh, you know, they they would try and win a decisive battle within a couple of days. You know, with this massive sort of bombardment of from from the air and the land. Yeah. You know? um, you know. So then, um, now, uh, un- unusually for any of these pilots flying Stukas, right? He had a rear gunner and radio operator called uh, Erwin Henschel for two and a half years. They went through everything Uh together for two and a half years. It's just almost unheard of that the rear gunner, for example, survives that long, you know. (laughs) They're the first target, aren't they? Uh, Definitely, yeah. Yeah, but he he did. And, um, you know, we'll come back to that guy a little bit later on, but, you know, Flying together for two and a half years earned uh, both of them a Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross, which is pretty good, you know. That's very, yeah, that's very good. Now, Rudolf, I don't know how I managed to find time for this because apparently, you know, from people that knew him, he was a bit of a loner. And right. He, he just wasn't interested in, uh, you know, the fine wines and uh, you know, the girls and stuff. No. But some or other, he manages to, to actually find time to find somebody and get married to her. Oh, okay. Early 1942, you know, while he was home on leave. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he got sent back to the Russian front and, you know, later in the year, he took part in the Battle of Stalingrad. Oh. You know, and and from May forty one to January forty two, he flew five hundred missions. Bloody hell! Uh, it's it's <laughs> astonishing, really. That's ridiculous amount. By February nineteen forty three, so like uh, thirteen months later, if you like, he'd flown a thousand combat missions, Whoa. and you know that was unheard of. That made him a national hero. Oh, absolutely. No. One of the big things, of course, uh, they were running up against is uh, the massive amount of Soviet tanks. Yeah. Coming, you know, 
uh, you know, as fast as you could kill them, they were turning out more. So yeah. his unit uh, became an, a, uh, an anti-tank unit. They experimented using the latest uh, Stuka JU-87G in an anti-tank role, and they, they fitted rockets oh. under the wings. Now, they took part in operations against the uh, Soviet uh, Kerch Eltigen operation, and they, they, you know, the German sort of uh, Reich Ministry used some of the gun camera footage from them destroying tanks as one of their propaganda films. <laughs> Die Deutsche Vosenschau. Now, April 1943, he's awarded the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross with oak leaves, rec- receiving the oak leaves part of it from Hitler personally in Berlin. Oh, right. So now he's, he's rubbing shoulders with Hitler now. Yeah. So well, he, he got sent back again, and he participated in the Battle of Kursk, you know, with this sort of same anti-tank unit. Yeah. July the 12th, on a single day in 1943, he actually destroyed 12 Soviet tanks in one day. (laughs) By by October 43, he's destroyed 100 tanks. And he's awarded the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross with oak leaves and swords. Only one of of only 160 ever awarded. Right. Oh, he's right up there now, then. Oh, he's right up there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, he's got to do neck strengthening exercises to dangle that thing around his throat. Oh, definitely. Uh, but, you know, he gets appointed then as, as a Gripen commander of Third Gripper in Ooh. February 44. Uh, but, you know, that's not the end of his excitement because on 20th of March, Rudel performed a forced landing behind Soviet lines. Um, him and his gunner Henschel, you know, got out of the plane. Yeah. But, you know, they're in enemy territory and they had to get back to German lines. And the, they, they got stuck at the, uh, the Neister River. Uh, so the only option there really was to be captured or to swim across the <laughs> river. And unfortunately, uh, Henschel drowned when he was trying to swim across. So now uh, old Hans Ulrich hasn't got a gunner anymore. No. So, you know, they're running out of people at this stage of the war. So (laughs) his replacement turned out to be uh, the guy who was the troop doctor of third grouper, a guy called Ernst Gaderman. Oh, marvellous. So now he's got the doctor... Of, uh, of the grupper in the back of his plane operating the radio and the machine gun. <laughs> but, you know, it didn't stop him. And he, he st- carried on and on and on. And he was awarded now the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross with oak leaves, swords, and diamonds. Yeah. Only one, uh, only uh, one of only 27 of those <laughs> ever awarded. Wow. Yeah, that was March 44. But, yeah. you know, he was the 10th member of the Wehrmacht to receive that award. So, you know, it had been done before. Yeah. But again, you know, Hitler personally presented it. And so there he is rubbing shoulders with uh, Hitler again. Yeah. So now uh, he gets promoted to the uh, 
um, to the position of uh, Oberst Leutnant on the 1st of September 44. And uh, he becomes the leader of SG2 uh, in on the 1st of October 44. On the 22nd of December 44, he completes his 2,400th combat mission. Christ. Right. And the very next day, he reports his 463rd tank destroyed. Bloody hell. <laughs> now, assuming uh, that there's like four or five crew members in a tank. Yeah. And when he, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen a tank blown up with a rocket, for example. Yes. Uh, they, they are pretty much mangled. Yeah. People don't tend to get out of them. Uh, in in fact, actually, um, I do know that most rockets would miss the tanks, hmm. right? But if you're jumping out of your tank that's been hit by a rocket, you're in very real danger of being killed by the other rockets uh, exploding around it. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and that did happen a lot, you know. In fact, uh, most tank crews on our side anyway were, were killed by mortar fire after their tanks were hit. Oh, bloody, I didn't you know, know they, that. Yeah, if the, if the tank was brewing up, for example, you know, caught yeah. fire or something, they'd want to get out of the tank, but, you know, the the, the Germans would be firing mortars as well. You see, so, you, you know, that's what killed most of the tank crews. We didn't uh, know that. Yeah. Didn't know that. So, you know, if you add those deaths... Uh, or kills, if you like, and the 326 that he killed on that ship. Oh, yeah. You know, he's got a lot of explaining to do when he goes to meet his maker. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Seems to have sort of, like, pulled his finger out from, like, his first sort of uh, venture into trying to become a Stuka pilot. Yeah. And to be, in, sure. you know, a very, very highly decorated one with so many sort of kills uh, during yeah. the war. Yeah. But he then gets himself promoted to Oberst, which directly translates as Colonel. Yeah. And he gets awarded the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross with golden oak leaves, swords, and diamonds. And diamonds. Yeah. He was the only person ever to receive that decoration. Oh. Wow. Um, I would, and again, that was presented personally to him by Hitler. Well, of course. <laughs> I, I mean, I think if, if, if the war had carried on much longer, I think he would have had the the Knight's Cross or the Iron Cross with golden oak leaves, swords, diamonds, and McDonald's golden yeah. arches, I think. That would have been the only thing left that he had. Yeah. Had. Bloody hell. But, He's you know. The highest decorated, well, yeah, yeah, highest decorated person in the Nazi sort of, of all time. Forces. Of all time. Yeah. Of all, yeah. yeah. Hell. <laughs> now, he did get wounded then really badly in his right foot. He managed to land inside German lines, but, you know, he's got his doctor in the back, which is handy. Uh, (laughs) And then he shouted uh, the flight instructions uh, to to Rudel because, you know, he he just... You can imagine if if your foot is really badly sort of, like, smashed, then, you know, you can't operate the sort of... Uh, foot controls, you know, for the 
uh, yeah. I don't know whether they're ailerons or the rudders. I'm not really sure because I don't fly. No. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you would have had to compensate for that with yeah. you know, a, a lot of other measures, yeah. you know, but he was obviously, you know, a very competent pilot. Oh, yes. Uh, but unfortunately for him, he ended up having his leg amputated below the knee. But uh, it didn't stop him flying. He was back in a plane by uh, the 25th of March, 45. He didn't wait around there. (laughs) Nope. But obviously that is pretty close to the end of the war then. Uh, Yeah. But he did manage to claim another 26 tanks. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah. He didn't slow down then (laughs) at all. No, no. But... um, On the 19th of April, 1945, the day before Hitler's birthday, he actually flew to the Führer bunker at the Reich Chancellery in Berlin and met up with Hitler. And, you know, it just just puzzles me. You know, you've got people like him and Hannah Reich flying to the Führer bunker and meeting up with Hitler. It's all these top pilots... Yeah. And it sort of makes me think that, you know, maybe there was a plan to get Hitler out. It seems that way. You know, you've got the two most decorated uh, pilots and the most decorated, uh, well, officer of all time uh, to a Nazi Germany, you know, the best pilots there, you know, coming to pay him a visit. Yeah, and Hannah Reich had a boyfriend with her uh, as well, you know. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, That's a bit it's funny, isn't it? Why I think that, you know, it is entirely conceivable that Hitler could have got out of that bunker and been flown to safety. Yeah. You know, I just, I'm, I'm just not buying the suicide thing. No, fully. I don't. I don't either. Not fully. No. no. Especially when you've got people like this hanging about. <laughs> exactly. You know, if you've flown 2,400 missions or more and not being killed, you must be pretty fucking good. Absolutely, especially flying a Stuker as well. Yes, <sighs> and, and, and if you think of that stage of the war, they very definitely did not have air superiority over anyone, uh, including the Russians. Not. Yeah. yeah and, and people forget that although the Russians had their own aircraft, they also had British aircraft. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, (laughs) anyway, you know, it got to the point where he had to get out because otherwise he was going to get caught by the Ruskies himself. Uh, And, you know, he he flew from an airport near, uh, an airfield near Prague straight into US controlled territory and and then, you know, just (laughs) sort of put his hands up. Now, it, it wasn't just him. him. There was there was a whole group of his men that, that surrendered. Okay. Um, some of them were in Stukas and some were in Fokkerwolfs. Oh, now, right. one, of the, one of the Fokkerwolfs was his own, actually. Uh, oh. It was his plane, even though he actually decided to fly a Stuka to get out. Oh. But he told them all, uh, to crash land so that they could destroy the planes rather than let the Americans uh, actually have them, right? Oh, that's interesting. 
But the guy who was flying Rudel's Fokkerwolf did a perfect landing. Oh, of course. It didn't crash at all. <laughs> so they did, they did get to capture that one. Oh. <laughs> anyway, uh, again, that's something that you won't find on things like Wikipedia. No, no. no. That's funny. <laughs> luckily for old hands, he had uh, the Americans on his side, really, because they the, the Soviets wanted him. Oh, know, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. You can only imagine what they would have done with him. Yeah. But uh, uh, the oh, Americans... Went to the right were, place. Yanks wouldn't hand him over. So, That's very jolly lucky. Nice of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, say jolly nice, he hasn't really done yeah. anything wrong, technically, has he? He's, well, so he killed, far, a lot he's of, just... killed a lot of Russians, right? So uh, yeah, the Americans wouldn't be too fussed about that. No, no, I mean, you know, he doesn't. <laughs> he, he's not coming across as being a fanatical Nazi. He's coming across as being somebody who did an extremely good job for his uh, country, country, and these yeah. armed forces. Yeah. yeah, same as you know, a British bomber pilot or American. Yeah, yeah mean, he's just a, a good working a crewman, really. Absolutely, totally <laughs> highly decorated. Hero. Yes, you know, yeah, exactly. decorated war hero, so no no problem there, right? No, that's all pretty good. Okay, so, you know, this, this isn't a guy who ended up uh, at the Nuremberg Trials or anything like that. No. And uh, so the Americans sort of said, well, you know, you, you can go. <laughs> and April 1946, off he goes, straight into private business. Oh, okay. You know, but... Things things weren't great in Germany after the war. Um, no. A lot of them just, whether they were Nazi war criminals or non-Nazi war uh, survivors, if you like, veterans, a lot of them wanted to get out, and, and he was no exception. Uh, but the way he did it was through the uh, rat lines to Argentina. You know, he he, he had help from people in Austria and uh, from South Tyrolean smugglers in Rome. Uh, he had a, an Austrian bishop called Aloy Hudal uh, sort him out with a, a fake Red Cross passport uh, <laughs> under the cover name of Emilio Meyer. That's a nice he, You know, he, he's not getting on a ship or a, a U-boat. He just jumps on a flight from Rome to Rome to Buenos Aires and of course. lands on the 8th of June, 1948. Oh, okay. You know, and, you know, he, he immediately, you know, sets about sorting his shit out. You know, he, he started writing books about the war. Okay. This is yeah. where it gets a little bit iffy because he's, in his books he supported the regime. And, and he absolutely attacked the uh, uh, Oberkommando der Wehrmacht for failing Hitler, basically. Hmm. Anyway. That's not too bad, I suppose. I mean, no, no, except that's... that he then gets all pally with President Juan Perón of Argentina. Oh, no. <laughs> and Paraguay's dictator Alfredo Strosner. <laughs> oh, 
And then he decides to get this sort of little group together called uh, uh, Kamadenverk, uh, sorry, Kamaradenverk, which is basically Comrades' Work or Comrades' Act, translates that, uh, which was a relief organization for, you guessed it, Nazi war criminals. Oh, marvelous. Now, they had a couple of prominent members as well, including uh, SS officer Ludwig Leinhardt, uh, whose extradition from Sweden had been demanded by the Soviet Union on war crime charges. Right. Uh, Kurt Christman, a member of the Gestapo, sentenced to 10 years for war crimes, committed at uh, Krasnodar. Uh, an Austrian war criminal called Fridolin Guth, and a very famous German spy who operated in Chile called August Siebrecht. Okay. Now, uh, you think taking that, a bit of a tune, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you think that would be enough, wouldn't you? But no. Oh, they no. maintained very close contact with other internationally wanted fascists, such as Ante Pavlich, Carlo oh, Scorza, Konstantin von Neurath. You know, the list goes on. Uh, <laughs> You know, they they insist uh, they they assisted Nazi criminals in prison in Europe, including Rudolf Hess and oh, really? Karl Dönitz. You know, they'd send them uh, food parcels and they pay their legal fees and all this type of thing. You know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, that's not. Now, you know, sending food is. I think you know that's quite humanitarian, uh, but uh, a bit dodgy paying legal fees and. You know, with his new friends, it's a bit dodgy. <laughs> yeah. Well, what well, you'd think, right, that, you know, you'd, 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 you'd be sort of like thinking, oh, hang on a minute, well, I'm, I'm going to get a bad name here because I'm sort of like hanging around with all these bad guys. Yes. And uh, that that might not go well for me, uh, you know. No. Yeah. <sighs> no. He decides to, uh, you know, get acquainted with notorious Nazi concentration camp doctor and war criminal, Joseph Mengele. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yep. Now, so that's, yeah, that's, that's, not, that's not a good look, no matter who you are. Exactly. Now, he oh, gets together Christ. with uh, Willem Sasson, who's a former Waffen-SS uh, soldier and war correspondent for the Wehrmacht, mm. who, you know, he had been working as Rudal's driver, right? But now okay. the pair of them helped to relocate Mengele to Brazil <laughs> by introducing oh. him to Nazi supporter Wolfgang Gerhard. Oh, <sighs> right. 1957, right? Yeah. Rudel and Mengele together traveled to Chile to meet with Walter Rauf. Now, that name might not mean much to people, but he no. was the inventor of the mobile gas chamber. Oh, Christ. <laughs> Lovely bunch of people. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh, that's ridiculous. Now, see, now, Rudel, right, he, he was a little bit crafty because he lived in a place called Villa Carlo 
Carlos Paz, which was right. like about 22 miles from a big city called uh, Cordoba. Right. right? Uh, but he, he just rented a house and he operated a brickworks, which was essentially a front, you know, for what he was yeah. doing. Yeah. Um, he's, again, you know, he's penning more books like his wartime memoirs called uh, Trotstem, which translates as nevertheless or uh, in spite of everything, you know, right. roughly. Okay. Now, he, okay. he got that published in 1949 by Dura Verlag in Buenos Aires. Um, you know, I mean, this this is a, a publisher that issued a variety of books, basically apologizing uh, for Nazi crimes and you know, okay. you know, it was basically for for nazis and their collaborators who, who wanted to sort of say sorry you know yeah and sort of yeah yeah that makes sense yeah. uh now among the early editors was a guy called wilfred von oven who was the personal press adjutant of Goebbels. uh you know i know another guy called Nauman. uh now, Sasson had convinced Adolf Eichmann to share his view on the Holocaust. Uh, right. <laughs> and so he got together with another a guy called uh, uh, Eberhard Fritz, who was a former Hitler youth leader. And uh, mm. so they started to interview Adolf Eichmann in 1956. Right. The, the, the idea of publishing his views, but... Uh, Bad luck for them because the uh, publication Dura uh, Verlag went bankrupt in 1958. So that oh. was the end of that. Oh dear, how sad. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> but, you know, Rudel, right, not to be deterred, wants to get his book published in Germany. Right. right? But like the Germans are like, oh, I don't know whether you should do that because, you know, he's, to them, he was a known Nazi. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Now, now we haven't convicted him of being a Nazi yet, but and and he was never no. convicted of any sort of war crime. So, you know. No, he was a pilot and you know a war yeah. hero. He's got a few yeah. dodgy friends, and he's well, he's yeah, done definitely. a few dodgy things in uh, South America. Uh, <laughs> trouble is, was that in this book he did support Nazi policies, so oh, it all right. had to be uh, watered down, you know, and as. As the Cold War intensified, uh, he did manage to get um, a heavily sort of edited book uh, published in the U.S. in the United States uh, under the title of Stuka Pilot, which well, basically was more about supporting the uh, German invasion of the Soviet Union. Oh, okay. Well, that what probably would have went down quite well at that yeah. time in America, really. Yeah. Know, the Cold War. Yeah. He also got, um, you know, pally with a guy called Pierre Klosterman, who was a French fighter pilot. You know, uh, it's astonishing that they got to be mates, but they did. And, uh, you know, old Pierre uh, wrote a foreword for the French edition of Stuka Pilot. <laughs> I, I, I just, it amazes me that anybody in France would want to even fucking read that. But uh, there we go. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, you know, they're both, you know, top pilots. Perhaps there's a bit of sort of mutual respect there. But 
I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't have done that if I was a French yeah. pilot. <laughs> well, and you know, Rudolph, and he's, he, you know, he's got the bug now, all this writing, you know, and he wrote another book. Uh, well, it was more of a pamphlet, really, in uh, 1951, uh, called uh, Dolstosh Oda Legenda, which sort of translates as stab in the back or legend, question mark. Oh. You know, in this pamphlet now, he claimed that Germany's war against the Soviet Union was a defensive war <laughs> and, and therefore a crusade for the whole world. Okay, that's... Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, and, and now he also found uh, this woman called Savitri Devi, who was a writer, but she was also a proponent of Hinduism and Nazism, you know, oh, and, and so he introduced her to uh, quite a few Nazi fugitives who were in Spain and the Middle East. Um, uh, you know, I think one of the most prominent ones really was Otto Scorzani. So I would imagine, you know, he introduced <laughs> her to him because they certainly yeah. knew each other. They were good pals. Uh, but, you know, Rudel, he's, uh, he's, he's not sort of uh, treading water. You know, back home in Argentina, he's got together with Perón again. Mm. and managed okay. to secure some lucrative contracts with the Brazilian military. Uh, you know, what they, they were doing was they were sort of shipping in, uh, you know, war surplus stuff like planes and weaponry yeah, uh, and oh, selling marvelous. it to the Brazilian military. <laughs> uh, he was also uh, doing that you know, as an advisor and arms dealer for the Bolivian regime. Oh, you know, and not forgetting Augusto Pinochet in Chile and uh, Strausner, again, the di that dictator in Paraguay. Marvelous. So, you know, now he was in contact with Werner Naumann, who was formerly a state secretary in Goebbels' Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda in Nazi Germany. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, following the uh, Revolution uh, Libertadora in 1955, uh, a military and civilian uprising that ended uh, Perón's second term, yeah. uh, he, had to, he pretty much had to get out of Argentina, Rudel did. Uh, <laughs> so he moved to Paraguay. So, oh, okay, that's nice. Yeah, do, so during those years, you know, in South America, he frequently acted as a foreign representative for several German companies, oh, uh, right. including Salzgitter AG, uh, Dornier, Flugzeverke, Fockerwolf, Messerschmitt, Siemens, Leia, oh. um, La Mea International, which was a, a German consult engineering consulting firm, you know. Uh, so he <laughs> was pretty heavily involved in all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But here's here's the really crazy thing, right? He later goes on to be a consultant uh, 
for the Americans in their development of the A-10 Thunderbolt II. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, as we know, that was designed solely for close air support, including you know, attacking targets on the ground, such as tanks and armoured vehicles. Well, he's good at that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the the bottom line though was, and and I'm I'm going to sort of quote this from historian Peter Hammerschmidt, um, based on files of the German Federal Intelligence Service and the U.S. CIA, uh, the BND under the cover-up company Merex was in close contact with former SS and party Nazi party members. Right. Uh, in 1966, Merex, represented by Walter Druck, a former general major in the Wehrmacht and the BND, uh, helped by contacts established by Rudel and Sasson, sold discarded equipment of the Bundeswehr, the German oh. Federal Armed Forces, to various dictators in Latin America. You know, so, uh, you know, according to Hammerschmidt, Rudel assisted in establishing contact between Merricks and Friedrich Schwend, who was a former member of the Reich Main Security Office and involved oh, in Operation hell. Bernard. You know, Schwend uh, had close links with the military services of Peru and Bolivia. And so then, you know, in the early 60s, he, uh, Sch Rudolf Schwend and Klaus Barbie, another... Klaus Barbie? Yes, we, we could be talking about him one day. Yeah, if you, uh, a lot of things about that, man. Well, they founded <sighs> a company called uh, La Estrella, which means the star, uh, oh. which employed a number of former SS officers. Uh, of course it did. Latin. Yeah. Of course it did. Oh. And, you know, that's, it was through La Estrella that Rudel got in contact with Otto Skorzeny, you know, who had his own network of former SS and Wehrmacht officers. Yeah. yeah now, I, I do know because I, I read a biography of Skorzeny that he was in Spain after the war. Okay. So hmm. I guess, that, you know, there's well, there were quite a few of them. Anyway, yeah. Believe it or not, Rudel returned to West Germany in 1953. Oh, right. Now, he didn't um, go there with the intention of a quiet retirement, uh, put his feet up, you know, just in, enjoy life. No. He went there and became a leading member of the neo-Nazi nationalist political party Right. Right. Okay. Which was called the Deutsche Reichspartei or the DRP. It's not looking good so far. I mean, it started off quite well. Yeah. It's slowly getting it. <laughs> well, he joined the uh, the DRP uh, as their top candidate, really, in the West German federal election of '53. Right. But he didn't get elected to the Bundestag. So, oh, what a terrible shame. Yeah. <laughs> you see, the, the thing is, um, you know, Rudolf had an egocentric character and 
in his political speeches, he, he made generalizing statements claiming that he was speaking on behalf of most, if not all, former German soldiers of World War II. Oh, yeah. and, and, you know, he, he heavily criticized the Western allies during World War II for not having supported Germany in <laughs> its war against the Soviet Union. Right. You know, uh, the, pro- the problem was it's because of his political demeanor, demeanor that, you know, a lot of his former comrades, uh, you know, were alienated, really. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, he, he just had no support, really. But uh, in 1977, he became a spokesman for the German People's Union, which, again, was a nationalist political party. Okay. Right. And, and, and he wasn't without scandals, by the way. In 1976, October, October 76, he, he inadvertently triggered a chain of events, which were later dubbed the Rudolf Affair. <laughs> uh, it isn't going to go well. Yeah. Well, um, the 51st Reconnaissance Wing of the Luftwaffe, you know, after the war, yeah. uh, was the latest unit to, to hold the name uh, Immelmann. Now, Immel, Immelmann was a First World War fighter pilot who sort of was heavily into developing aerobatic skills. Okay. And, and one of them is named after him called the Immelmann Turn. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, so you know, he was a First World War hero and this yeah. reconnaissance wing was named after him. Uh, now, they held a reunion for members of the unit, including those from World War II. Oh, okay. Uh, the Secretary of State in the Federal Ministry of Defence, Hermann Schmidt, authorised the event. Uh, but fearing that Rudel would spread Nazi propaganda on the German Air Force <laughs> Air Base in Bremgarten near Freiburg, Schmidt ordered that the meeting could not be held at the airbase. Well, news of that decision reached uh, General Lieutenant Walter Krapinski, who was at the time the the commanding general of NATO's second allied tactical air force and a former World War II fighter pilot. Um, Hmm. So he got in touch with Gerhard Lindbergh, who was the inspector of the Air Force, requesting that the meeting would be allowed to be held at the airbase. Okay. So they they did allow it, um, even though uh, yeah, Hermann Schmidt, who was the, the Federal Ministry of Defence, had not agreed to it. Yeah. And Rudolf, you know, attended the meeting and was uh, doing a book signing, you know. Oh, lovely. <laughs> But he, he, he did refrain from making any political statements. Oh, that's nice of him, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But uh, during a routine press event, journalists who had been briefed by Schmidt questioned Krapinski and, and his deputy, Karl Heinz Frank, about Rudolf's presence. Uh, you know, and in this interview, the generals compared Rudolf's past as a Nazi and neo-Nazi supporter 
to the career of prominent social democratic leader Herbert Berner, uh, who had been a member of the German Communist Party in the 30s, and who had lived in Moscow during World War II, where he was allegedly involved in NKVD operations. Oh, of uh, <laughs> calling Werner an extremist, they described Rudel as an honourable man who hadn't stolen the family silver or anything else. <laughs> but uh, when these remarks became public, the Federal Minister of Defence, George Lever, uh, you know, ordered the generals into early retirement. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that was that scandal. And, uh, you know, the the uh, Rudel scandal, as called it, subsequently triggered a military tradition discussion, which the Federal Minister of Defence, Hans Appel, ended with the introduction of guidelines for understanding and cultivating tradition on the uh, 20th of September, 1982. Bloody hell. Oh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, th- the thing is, like, in you know, do, you wouldn't think football would have anything to do with this, would you, right? But during the 1978 World Cup, which was held in Argentina, Rudel visited the German national football team in its training camp. Of course he did. <laughs> so, of course, the German media immediately criticised the German FA uh, and viewed Rudel's visit as being sympathetic to the military dictatorship that ruled Argentina, you know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but that wasn't, that wasn't the first time he'd done that. During uh, the 1958 FIFA World Cup in Sweden, he visited the German team at Malmo on the 8th of June, 1958, you know, and was welcomed by team manager Sepp Herberger. Christ. Oh, Oh, anyway. he's in the German, uh, well, the, yeah. the Nazis, <laughs> a very prominent Nazi yeah. during the war. Oh, marvellous. But, do you know what? You know, we, we haven't talked much about his personal life. No, no. But he was actually married three times. Oh. Yeah. Oh. His, that first marriage, um, he produced two sons. Right. Uh, Hans Hans Ulrich and oh. Siegfried. Oh, but him and his wife Ursula, who who was actually nicknamed Hannah, uh, they they divorced in 1950. Uh, apparently, one reason for the divorce was that his wife had sold some of his decorations, including the oak leaves with diamonds, to an American collector. Bloody uh, hell! Yeah. But she also refused to move to Argentina, see. And so, she had some money for that. <laughs> well, she did. She denied it. You know, uh, uh, she was interviewed on the twenty seventh of March, nineteen fifty one, by De Spiegel, and uh, she absolutely denied selling his decorations. Oh, okay. and further stated that she had no intention of doing so. Oh. But then uh, he marries his second wife, also called. Ursula. Oh, nice. 1965. And he had a third son then, Christoph. But um, a year after his third son, Christoph, was born, he had a stroke. Oh, 
and uh, you know he, he lasted another um, few years, but then um, she divorced him. Right? Oh dear! But then he got married again in right. 1977 to another woman called Ursula. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, his story ended pretty quickly then because uh, five years later in 1982, he died after suffering, suffering another stroke. Uh, oh, okay. he, he's buried in Dornhausen, wherever that is in Germany, on the 22nd of December 1982. Uh, apparently, now here's another scandal for you. Right. During his burial ceremony, two Bundeswehr F-4 Phantoms appeared to make a low-altitude flypast over his grave. What? Now, Dornhausen was situated in the middle of the flight path, regularly flown by military aircraft, right? Right. And, and the Bundeswehr officers denied deliberately flying aircraft over the funeral. You know, but... They think yeah. that's probably what happened. And, yeah. and actually, not only that, four of the mourners at the funeral uh, were photographed giving Nazi salutes. You know, right. uh, and, okay. uh, and they were investigated for that because, of course, there was a law banning the display of Nazi symbols at the time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think it's... Is it still... Yeah. yeah, it is still in use, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That law. Yeah. So well, that's not a good way to end. <laughs> it's like, no, hell. Um, I mean, I'm trying to, I, I tried to find good things to say about this guy. Yeah. And if you look at his war record, he is undoubtedly for the Germans, a war hero. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, he's the most decorated, war hero that there ever was really um, and, yeah. but unfortunately after the war he kind of shows his true colours doesn't he yeah I mean he starts off quite slowly and it rapidly sort of builds up speed um, <laughs> he's got a lot going on by the end of his life and he's been yeah, through and a I'd, lot yeah. I'd say you can only really reach one conclusion can't you I think so yeah so, you know, weighing up, you know, nice, you know, good war hero, done a lot for uh, Germany and aviation. Um, but, you know, just looking at what he got up to in South America and afterwards, uh, and the ridiculous thing of uh, actually being acquainted and, you know, trying to get uh, Joseph Mengele uh, away from everyone, you've just got to admit that he's just a complete Nazi cunt. Yes, I couldn't have put it better than that. He is an absolute and complete Nazi cunt. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. That's ridiculous. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's, that's five of these, sorry, four of these Germans we've investigated now. Because, yes. of course, this is episode five, but uh, we, we, uh, we did... Uh, Prince Philip special, so uh, oh, that's right, we, yeah. we didn't do a Nazi run there. Uh, no. So, four out of four failures? Uh, yep. <laughs> yep. It's not looking good for any... Well, it's not looking good, is it? 
No, definitely <laughs> no. not. Oh, well, there we go. We tried. We tried. We did. We tried. It just, uh, God. Um, there we are. Okay. Well, I guess that rounds it up for another episode. And, it does. Uh, I think we all have, we all, We'll certainly have to uh, get our heads down now and uh, research another couple of uh, uh, topics for the next episode. And uh, yeah, uh, hope to see you soon. See you soon. Cheers, though. Bye. Bye. Princess Di had a car crash. Malcolm X was shot with a gun. Freud took too many tablets. Mama Cass may have choked on a bun. You just never know when it's your time to go. You could soon be a thing of the past. Don't waste it away. Try and live for the day. But remember, it could be your last. And never plan tomorrow's breakfast. Because you might just die in the night. Never plan tomorrow's breakfast. You could just go out like a lie. There are more ways to die than the stars in the sky. And we're all hanging on by a thread. So never plan tomorrow's breakfast. Because you might be dead. Those who seek immortality should be warned. Their chances are slim. Because Jesus promised eternal life. And look what happened to him. John Keats went in a fever Genghis Khan just fell off his horse Elvis croaked on the toilet Richard Burton died of divorce Your life will be shit If you spend all of it Doing nothing but thinking what if So live like a king Don't try everything Cause eventually you'll be a stiff And never plan tomorrow's breakfast